Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. This week and this month, I think I've done nothing. I have nothing for this line here because I adopted a puppy uh, and he has terrorized every aspect of my life, <laughs> most notably my free time. <laughs> yeah, but it's provided a lot of cute photos, so. Yeah, that's what counts. Yeah, I mean, it's counted on my end, mostly. Sure, sure. <laughs> and I'm Cameron Lalana, and <laughs> earlier today, actually, uh, my friend bought me this this awful, awful hat that I love that says, uh, women want me, fish fear me, that I usually don't wear, but I was today for whatever reason. I went into a coffee shop near my house, and I happened to meet... Uh, completely forgetting I was wearing this hat, uh, one of the people who, uh, for the org I, I work with through the city, that we are we are connected with other similar orgs by the service corps, and this guy is kind of high up in there and runs all the leadership trainings I have to attend through my job. Uh, and I had an entire conversation with him, walked away and realized I was wearing the, you know, women want me fish fear me hat this whole time. So I'm sure that mm. next leadership training is going to go perfectly no, with no awkwardness at all. I think you need to own it and wear the hat the next training. I think that's the only way forward. I think I should combo it. I sent Matt this this shirt the other day that I found that says, uh, what was it? Yeah, women don't respect me, fish don't fear me. I think I need to wear that shirt and this hat, and that'll bring mm-hmm. it all together. Mm-hmm. It'll really complete the look, the something. Yeah, I don't the the I don't know if it's a look. I think it's just like in existence. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to define that exactly, but anyway. Anyway. Enough of the list that Cameron's definitely going on somewhere. This is a podcast <laughs> where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're going back to our favorite foot fetishist with chapters one through three of Alexander Pushkin's Eugene Onyegin. If you want to say in what we're going to be reading next, or stop our impending pivot to mostly being about socialist realism, it's happening. head on over to Patreon. It is happening. Just wait. <laughs> patreon.com slash tipsy tolstoy you think we're kidding for as little as three dollars a month you can keep your favorite russian literature podcast running and join in on fun events like our recent habit of occasionally streaming visual novels so if you want to see us get just incredibly drunk and then play whatever happens to be whatever we've cursed matt's hard drive with this time mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're not interested in Patreon but still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. I routinely get messages from friends I haven't talked to in years when they see me open up some of these games to play on the podcast <laughs> Discord. Uh, yeah. And they're like, are, are you well? <laughs> like, I know I haven't <laughs> talked to you in two years, but um, what's going on here? And I have to tell them, no, I'm not well. That's why this is... Uh, <laughs> this is- that's why I spend my time like this. I'm extremely not well. That's why I'm playing the KFC dating sim for my podcast. I can't believe I've played that twice and Colonel Sanders has <laughs> just flat out rejected me both times. Yeah, not good at and not good at seducing Colonel Sanders. No. When you said that was a corporate game at first, I was like, this is so this how could this be corporate? But then I saw that there is apparently no possible path to actually romancing the colonel, and I realized mm-hmm. this is this is where the corporations take us down. It would be an they're HR holding violation. us back from actually. Mm-hmm. It would, be, yeah, it would be, but they're holding us back. Mm-hmm. HR is holding us back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You heard it here first. I can't say. I can't say that one. That, that that's that's a, that's a, that is uh, the sentence you say before you get sent to HR. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, speaking of getting sent to HR over feet things, <laughs> I thought you said so, Matt. Matt. Um, you may, if you've been following, I can't remember if this was uh, a tweet you put out or it's something you've texted me, but it was just every time Pushkin, and this was definitely a tweet, every time in, in Eugene Onegin 
Pushkin mentions, or sorry, the narrator wink mentions feet. Yeah, wink, wink. <laughs> I thought that was like a little, a little fun, haha, a little haha cheese day, a little fun joke. But then I read it and I didn't realize that this, there's actually like times when like at five five stanzas in a row, it's it's about feet. Um, so that 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 was less of a joke than I thought it was. No, it wasn't really a joke actually at all. And it was both a message and a tweet because that's what inspires my uh, my tweets. You are my Twitter muse. <laughs> <laughs> if the material works on me, that means it's good enough for Twitter. No, I have to send you the really raunchy stuff, and then I have to send you things that I think can be posted on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to see how it feels after I send it. You know, <laughs> you know, I respect that. I respect that method. I like that. Do you want to do some some summary and then uh, fill in the, the the blanks as we go? Yeah, let's talk about some summary. So I'm not going to lie to you. I was I was uh, before we started reading. I was a little bit I panicked a little bit. I didn't know how we were possibly going to summarize um, a poem and uh, well, as as Pushkin puts it, a novel in verse, um, but you know, essentially a poem. Um, but I think I think I think we can do it. I've, I've got a lot of notes, taken a lot of. Um, Taking a lot of quotes, probably will not be reading them all. Yeah, I mean, pretty notably, almost nothing happens. Yeah, but there are a lot of really good lines. That's, That's true. the there problem. Are. Well, there are, yeah, but in terms of plot action, not a ton for yeah. as long as it is. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Well, um, <laughs> I'm probably going to I'm gonna keep you here for a usual camera length of a summary, or hopefully shorter, uh, because as I was reading the first three chapters over the course of like four hours, I think, uh, I was... It was mostly because I just read an entire verse uh, or an entire stanza and laughed enough that I decided I had to write the entire thing in my notes. <laughs> so, so we start off with, um, as you might imagine, by a novel named after Eugene Onegin, uh, with not Eugene. Uh, we start off with a, a the narrator talking about things that have inspired him or his uncle, things in general, uh, which kind of slowly lead us to talking about this this young rake and his meditations and and. As you might imagine, this young Rick is referring to Eugene Onegin, uh, which the poem goes over his early life, what it was like to be uh, him when he was he was young, his father taking on many debts, um, Eugene being someone who was 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 quite bright and and yet quite wild in many ways, and uh, as he got older, he became kind of the 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 flower of any event he went to or of any school he was at because he was everything he needed to be he was he was a gifted conversationalist he had little interest in history or really maybe hard-nosed learning per se but he had a a huge appetite for anecdotes and things that just do well in crowds and uh, although he kind of was he lacked a passion for the greeks it should be noted and at this time um this is like the the basis for a good you know educated uh, uh, kind of <laughs> I don't know how to say it, elite class is their their understanding of the elite of, of the of the ancients. But really, uh, uh, Onegin really does not care for that much. He prefers uh, it's noted by the narrator Adam Smith to to the to the old readings that everyone else goes through. Although <laughs> how much everyone else is reading is a little bit questionable as the narrator notes and one of many, many funny asides uh, when the narrator writes, We all meandered through our schooling, haphazard, so to God be thanks, it's easy without too much fooling, to pass for cultured in our ranks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else is dumb except me. <laughs> <laughs> me and Onegin. Um, 
Actually, that's kind of like a uh, everyone, including me, is dumb. But thankfully, we're, none of us acknowledge it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So he he the narrator notes he learned easily to dissemble, to hide hopes, to make show of jealousy, to seem uh, like everything he needs to be. Um, he he's just he he's basically what the situation calls for. And we call, we can kind of follow this early formulation, um, but it's noted that although. Um, People like him. People like him a lot, actually. And he's in, I don't think it's mentioned, is it he in Petersburg? He's in high society. Um, and he's he is just, just the life of the party. He's attend, he is like invited to three social functions a night, and he goes to them all, even after a full day of uh, walking around the streets of Petersburg, doing nothing in particular. As we're going through, it should be noted that the narrator is kind of wandering in and out of Eugene's story. Um, at some points, we're talking about... Um, Onegin's kind of relationship to the social scene and then we'll leave for a couple stanzas to talk about for example the the narrator's own relationship to that social scene or how he feels about it or warning parents to keep their daughters away from it before thinking about his own time in theater and how much how much fun that was and declaring oh my goddesses where are you banished now that he no longer has that much passion for theater and, and, and feeling that what is there has changed but even though um Onegin, who at this point, it, it's like it, the narrator is kind of, again, is we're kind of following the day of Onegin, but we're also dipping in and out of the narrator's thoughts when, and sometimes we'll dip into the narrator's thoughts and come back and it's like, you know, half a day has passed. Um, it, it's noted that Onegin, even when he goes to these plays, he's bored by them. So he, he leaves quickly and we, we join, uh, we, we look at his room and it's, it's the room of a dandy. He's got, I think it's noted 30 brushes for his teeth, for his nails, for everything imaginable. And he can spend up to three hours getting ready uh, to go somewhere. King. Yeah, absolute, <laughs> absolute king shit. I gotta, I gotta wonder, how much wandering can you really do if you had to attend three social functions a night, wander the streets of Petersburg for hours, and also spend three hours a day getting ready to... Listen, it's a hard life. <laughs> it's a hard life. 30 brushes? I don't know how much you can brush. I mean, that's like... 30 times. Okay, nail brushes, sure. Teeth brushes, sure. Hair brushes, sure. Um, I mean, maybe I was like, exposing my own ignorance here, but what else is there? Cameron, Cameron, Cameron. <laughs> Do you need different brushes for your, like your toenails and your fingernails, you think? Yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so we, we were following through and learning all about uh, Onegin's you know, fancy, fancy tastes before we rejoin Onegin attending a ball. Um, it, the, the soiree is in full swing when he enters. And uh, like I said before, the narrator, again, dips away to talk about his own past and, and these things and specifically what... Uh, a warning uh husbands and mothers is the combo he warns not to let their daughters go to those balls uh, and he notes that he only writes like this you know since i stopped sitting years ago um and then after that um as he's reflecting on the the balls he says i love their feet though i confess that all of russia can't contribute three pairs of handsome ones <laughs> which then descends into six stanzas of of the of the foot of his one true love which is now lost to him. I don't know if this is. Um, I, I actually should have checked. You just jog my memory about this poem that Vyazimsky wrote. This is one mm. of Pushkin's good friends and influences, and cited in the book and et cetera, et cetera. And he wrote this poem called "Russian God," which was never published, and it was. The, I think I sent it to you, Cameron. Yes. It was a satirical take on he uh, did. Uh, on Russian society, talking about the you know the god of uh, saggy asses and breasts, and um, he has a comment there about. Uh, 
how Russian women have big feet and he doesn't, he's just not interested in that. Um, and so it's like a, a common dig, but I want to talk about the, the feet digression after we do the summary. Yeah. But we'll come back to that. I yeah. just thought, Hey, it's a long digression. You know, if you want to check out that poem, you should, it's pretty funny. Yes. So that, You're that, welcome. that, <laughs> thank you for bringing it up. Um, <laughs> those series of stanza ends on this line, which is impossibly funny to me. The happiness of youth is dead. Just like, on turf, your fleeting tread. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so much that makes reference. I had to ask Matt about this before, That what 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 he thought the Terpsichorean foot meant. Yeah, I could have just Googled that, but it was way funnier to see Matt squirm while I asked him that. Um, I wasn't squirming. I was Googling to the side while I was pretending to answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you're wondering, that's uh, uh, terps- Terpsichor or Terpsichore. Uh, for any Greek listeners, please don't come kill me uh that that is a mute that is one of the seven muses who's known for dancing so terpsichorean foot is a dancer's foot so to speak you absolute fool <laughs> you absolute fool you don't know all the muses huh? 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 <laughs> this this is this is how i'm not the real academic I, I don't have all the muses memorized yeah you're not the real academic you don't just google quickly and pretend like you knew it all along <laughs> That's that's why I have multiple screens. Everyone, people at my work think, oh, camera knows a lot of stuff. No, it's because I've got three screens and I can Google while I'm staring directly into the camera. Uh, <laughs> so you don't know. I can type real fast. But as as we are talking about these feet, the, the time is not stopped. We rejoin uh, Onegin, not as the one of three soirees that he's been invited to is in full swing, but rather... I, what I think is implied to be next morning around dawn as as Yegan is kind of dozing and the rest of Petersburg, it's noted, is waking up all the bakers and mail deliverers and all the other jobs that there are to do. And it's noted that his day is, although, you know, full of fun and festivities, they're monotonously gay. They are just, they're, they're the, the happiness of each day is just so boring. Um, and this, this line really, I think this stanza kind of captures it. No, early on his heart was cooling, and he was spored with social noise. No, not for long were bellies the ruling objective of his thoughts and joys. Soon, infidelity proved cloying, and friends and friendship soul-destroying. Not every day could he wash down his beefsteak with champagne, or drown his Straussburg pie, or point a moral, full of his usual pith and wit, with cranium aching fit to split. And though he liked a fiery quarrel, yet he fell out of love at last, with saber slash and bullets blast. So duels, beefsteak, champagne, whatever the hell a Strasbourg pie is, uh, not doing it for him anymore. It's 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 all boring. And at this point is when our narrator makes acquaintance with Onyegin. Uh Both of them are relentlessly bitter. It's noted uh, um, that the the bitterness was mine. The ice was his. We'd both drunk passion's chalice. Our lives were flat. And what had lived, both hearts to blaze, now had expired. Uh, so they they both they both lived great, exciting lives and full of passion, and that's that's gone now. Onegin he he left behind the social life. He tried to find it in books, but all the old writers were dead and not interesting. All the new writers were obsessed with the old writers. These two, these this pair is is just they are beyond it all. They're they're <laughs> somewhat nihilistic about things. Um, and this friendship probably would have deepened if it hadn't been for chance. First of all, Onyegin's father dies, and uh, all the usurers, all the people that owed uh, uh, Onyegin's father owed money to, came looking for their money, and Onyegin says, I don't want to deal with this here, just just take it all, and basically gives away his whole inheritance to get rid of all these these creditors. Almost immediately following that, 
Onegin receives a summons from his uncle saying, hey, I'm dying. I'd like to see before I go. And by the time Onegin gets out to the country, his, his uncle has already died. Luckily for him, although there's, there's much family to attend the funeral, he's the one who apparently inherits the countryside estate, and Onegin becomes a man of the country. Although it's noted that within two days, uh, his newfound freedom has already become a bore, uh, and he really does not care for, for the countryside, which the narrator notes, this is where Eugene and I are very different. I, as a poet, you know, where I'm, I'm quite happy to be out in nature, but Eugene, you see, actually was, was never able to take up the pen. Uh, the, before this kind of goes into a side where the narrator's talking about poets and their muses, and it's mostly about his uh, his lost love and how actually when I was in love, I was completely dull as a poet. And now finally that I'm, uh, you know, no longer in love, he, you know, he writes, I'm grieving still, but no more tears. And soon, oh, soon the storm's arrears will in my soul be hushed and dying. That's when I will sit down to compose an ode in 25 cantos. He's doing great, guys. He's he's doing. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> my my ex leaving me totally didn't affect me at all. I mean, <laughs> does, it, does it sound like I'm doing great, guys? I can totally write a poem about this whole thing, right? <laughs> right. Plus, there's only a handful of poets, so you're probably going to have to study in the future. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So this kind of leads us into to chapter two, uh, which is when Eugene is out in the countryside and. He's, he's just bored he is anyone else these pleasures out in the countryside they would have been like this is amazing this is awesome but you know he's a he's of the landed gentry um boredom comes easy to him and he doesn't even really care about what's going on he, he owns this estate and it goes without saying that this estate also comes with the number of serfs as serfs and older literature not really given much humanity or even consideration so he, he he doesn't even care he just he puts them onto this alternate taxation plan where instead of you know, as, as serfs, you were basically bound legally to the land you lived on, and whoever owned it, you kind of that was that was the person who owned you. He puts them onto this 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 service uh, this plan where basically they they pay him a form of tax, and they kind of get they basically get a, a sort of right to do to live on the land as if it's their own, but they don't actually have legal rights to the land. It's a weird system. But all of his, all of Onegin's neighbors are like, this guy is weird. He's a he's a maniac and a freak. Uh, and and Onegin really doesn't help that perception by being incredibly bored of everything they do and does not want to hang out with them. Um, so they're, they they grow distant from him. Now opposite him, there is this young, fresh lad, Vladimir Lensky, who is fresh out of uh, you know German university and, and or German learning, and he's a poet and a Kantian sage, and he believes in life with a sense of romance and you know in a sort of destiny for the people around him he believes that you know one day humanity as a whole will kind of come to this point that they were meant to re- get to and he's he's so in this 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 stanza is kind of written with a sense of humor about it and there's there's a lot of humor in this this and eugene onegin that i really enjoy he's saying of grief and parting time of something vague some misty climb roses romantically blowing of many distant lands he sang where in the heart of silence rang his sobs where his live tears were flowing. He sang of lifetime's yellowed page, when not quite 18 years of age. <laughs> I'm not saying that Pushkin was directly adding me at 19 years old listening to Crust Funk about, you know, being like old and, and having done too many drugs but not knowing what you can do now. At You know, again, the tender age of 19 being like, yeah, I get you, man. I get it. I get what's going on here, but it kind of is. 
Lenski, too, is bored by the neighbors. He doesn't think they've got very good conversation or doesn't think they have much to say at all, uh, although they are all kind of in love with him and are trying to marry their daughters off to him. And, uh, you know, Vladimir and Eugene, they, they, they form a friendship. They're happy to hang out, as the narrator notes. Friendship, as I must own to you, blooms when there's nothing else to do. So uh, there's... Although the narrator, uh, I'll come back to this, this stanza later, kind of notes that you know, friendships, friendships can't really be anymore. We're in the age of, uh, we, we are in the age where we know that all two-legged creation are just instruments and tools, and the only inspiration is Napoleon. Uh, they nonetheless kind of form this friendship where they, uh, well, frankly, Lenski does a lot of the talking, they do some mild debating, while Onegin puts up with Vladimir and just tolerates what he's saying, but doesn't really think about it too much. Um, this section kind of closes on Vladimir talking about his love for this this, this neighbor of theirs named Olga, who he kind of grew up around, um, which quickly transitions into, and this is a part I'm actually, I was going to ask you about because I'm not entirely clear because um, it goes from Vladimir telling a story about Olga to the narrator telling a story about Tatiana, who's old, Olga's older sister, uh, and Tatiana being someone who is not at all like Olga. Well, Olga is pretty and uh, knows how to engage in the social scene in the way that's expected of her and plays with all the appropriate child's toys. Tatiana is kind of an old soul. She retreats from playing outside and playing with friends. She just wants to read, especially like romance novels. That's that's what she's all about. Well, she's also she's old for like she's practically ancient. She's 20. <laughs> so at that time if you, yeah. i think if you weren't married by like 17 it was like what are you what are you doing but tatiana was also the first reading generation of russian women so that's an important feature of her character right yeah she's a huge reader which actually kind of mirrors her mother the text notes uh, her mother was a reader in her own right um was not really happy with being forced into the marriage she was but eventually kind of settled with it and just lived her life and became the matriarch that she was expected to be but tatiana she has that trend or that tendency towards reading and she's not quite in her mother's era she was not forced to marry off like her mother was um which carries us into chapter three and learning a little bit more about tatiana because as as vladimir is telling eugene all about this 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 uh, girl olga who is like ah so like you know he's so in love with eugene's like hey I mean, you're going to go over there later today anyway. Why don't you take me along? So they go and they have this nice time. But because everyone has like so got their, their sonars on for when Eugene does anything, a rumor starts where everyone says, oh, did you hear Tatiana's finally got a husband uh, from Eugene? You know, those two weirdos. Eugene for being kind of a dick and Tatiana for being unmarried at 20, that ancient age. And Tatiana, upon hearing this at first, is quite mortified and doesn't know how to react. But slowly, it notes, um, is like so in the grips of just sadness and depression that it kind of comes around to like, yeah, actually, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. And, and, and it's not really clear whether she actually had ever talked to Eugene at this point, but uh, perhaps predisposed by a, an active imagination and um, a kind of a sense of uh, creativity. She begins to fall in love with this idea of, of, of Eugene Onegin. And uh, we... we, we follow more about that it gets very abstract for this chapter she's trying to think about it and explaining it to her nurse but the her nurse is like really doesn't understand she comes from a generation 
her nurse does where she was just at the age of 13 was married off to some random dude and like literally sent to his family and that was just and then she was like yep that's that's my husband that that's how it happens i have no idea what love is my you know my gender and back back in my day we didn't think about things like love we just got married at 13 and we were okay with that um so she's not doesn't really give tatiana much much solace in that regard so tatiana writes a letter confessing her love to Eugene and has um, her nurse's uh, nephew go deliver it to Anya again. And she waits a whole day to, for his response. And, and and Vladimir Lensky, he arrives to hang out with Olga and, you know, do his usual, do his usual thing, but, you know, um, nothing from Eugene. And Tatiana anxiously awaits until late at night, a carriage draws near and she goes to the garden to see him and he steps out, eyes ablaze, and she steps forward kind of expecting this moment that she's been imagining all day but it's noted that let me get the exact words but although his eyes were a glitter still as a shadow grim and bitter seared as by fire she stopped and then the poet the narrator says ah, I, <laughs> i'm too tired to finish the rest of this we'll come back to this another time thank you narrator which is where we leave off with <laughs> thank you narrator thank you for your hard work <laughs> i i i i i honestly love any era where you can just stop a chapter being like I'm tired. Come back later. Because this was published over the course of like eight years, I think, right? So... Just a little cliffhanger for you. Theoretically, someone... Yeah, someone read got read that whole thing, was like, oh my god, what does is, what is Isaac Glitter mean? And then it ended on, I'm tired. And then you had to wait like a year to read the next part. <laughs> oh, serialized literature. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. You, you love to see it. Um, so that, that is part chapters one through three. Uh, there's a couple things I left out, but we might touch on some of them. We might not. Uh, th- there are a lot of asides in the narrator. Uh, I know we always encourage you to read if you have not already as you're going to this episode. But really, I mean, it's not It's not a long... If you're not doing what I am and like writing down every passage that's funny to you, it's not a long read. And it's also... It's interesting and it's pretty funny. Um, you, can, you can purchase it uh, or you can find it online uh, for free. And uh, if you're getting a, a good copy, it, it should be pretty funny. And also we have affiliate links on our website. Yes, that too. It helps us so very much. It keeps the <laughs> lights on. They're every day I see them flickering and I think, well, if only somebody bought through our affiliate link, maybe I could have a constant stream of light. <laughs> it would help it would help reading. It would. It's really difficult to read in the dark. My eyes are completely ruined now. Oh, you're in the well, I've been I've been I've been going on a line of credit to buy candles actually oh okay okay yeah i'm pretty deep in debt and i think they're gonna come take my knees but see that's why i'm saving to start a start a, a bee farm so that i can make my own <laughs> candles oh that's a good idea that's a really that good one's idea. only half a joke all right <laughs> all right well let's talk what well, this there's okay there's a lot to go through here do you mind if we talk about pushing a little bit because i want to talk about kind of what, what what's going on with him as he's writing this just a little bit so obviously pushkin's writing this while he's in exile uh, but to get to exile, we got to go back like thirteen um, years ish. Okay, sure. Well, let's start thirteen years back then. It was a cold Thursday night. <laughs> the fire was burning. <laughs> no, we got to go back to fighting Napoleon. Yeah. Okay. As it always, as it always goes back to. As it always goes back to. Um, it was a dark and stormy Thursday night. <laughs> Once again, we're at war with Napoleon. Ah, <laughs> uh, the nineteenth century. So, yeah, the Russians beat Napoleon. That was the thing. That was pretty good. Uh, good of them to do that. So as 
the Russians were pushing Napoleon back to Paris, the officer class was getting exposed to the French more heavily. They were already speaking French, reading French. This is already the kind of dominant cultural sphere in Russia. Uh, but now there's actually kind of personal contact and a much more free flow of ideas. It's quite interesting that though they were fighting Napoleon, they were actually quite in line with some of the ideas that was uh, coming out of the French Revolution and all of this. So, um, yeah, so 18, 1812, this happens. They get taken back to Russia, these ideas, um, after Russia defeats Napoleon. Even though he's defeated, Pushkin remembers him quite fondly, uh, though he has mixed opinions about him personally, and Onyegin, Napoleon is remembered uh, kind of fondly through the character of Onyegin himself, which we talk about in a little bit. But So these ideas kind of fester in high society for about 13 years. It's kind of apparent that Alexander I is not particularly receptive to them. Um, he's growing increasingly regressive. So these ideas are actually pushed underground into secret societies in which poets were a pretty major part of, mostly because even though it's hard to believe as a U.S. citizen, the idea that poetry can actually play a major role in <laughs> political change um, or uh, like politics at all, but that was definitely the case here. So... These fester for 13 years about, and then we get to December 14th in the old calendar, 1825, uh, when Alexander suddenly passes away, and there is the uh, attempted transition of power, well, successful eventually transition of power to Nicholas I, who was, uh, to put it mildly, somebody that most people didn't want to become czar. Uh, they, they wanted his brother Constantine to be the czar. Um, Constantine said, no, thank you. Um, more or less, uh, Nicholas assumes power. Uh, there is a major event called the Decemberist Revolt, uh, in which many of the officers from the military try to essentially pull off a coup um, and prevent Nicholas from assuming power. It does not work. It is brutally suppressed, uh, and they are sent into exile with uh, many of their wives choosing to follow them to Siberia and wherever else they are exiled. Now, Pushkin was not involved in this, one, because... Um, he was such a highly valued poet and two he was an absolute notorious loudmouth and everybody knew that he absolutely could not keep something like this a secret that is factual um <laughs> and so he had already been in exile for writing things that were critical of the government and nicholas essentially kind of asks him well if you were in petersburg during this what would you have done and pushkin said well i would have stood right by everyone else um, and so this kind of confirms what Nicholas had uh, had thought. And so eventually, actually, Pushkin, he, Nicholas does eventually um, lift his exile at some point and then actually becomes his personal censor, which was mostly a curse for Pushkin. Um, many of his things not, not being published, at least not in the way he wanted. Um, but so that takes us to where Onyegin was actually written, as Cameron said, in serial 1825 to 1832, and then it was published fully in 1833. But so we had the Decemberists in 1825. So that's like the major background for what is happening in Onyegin. Um, these characters are, a, a lot of them are kind of, it's implied they would have been part of the Decemberist revolt. And we'll talk about the ending, how that, uh, I guess Pushkin at one point was considering having Onyegin even go on more explicitly to be part of that, but that didn't end up being the case but it kind of you can see through their influences how that would have happened everything essentially taken from uh the french and then i guess with Lenski, you have some 
being taken from the Germans. But yeah, so that's kind of the backdrop with a lot of names and dates on how we got to where <laughs> we were. But yeah, I, I think going forward, like basically everything from Pushkin was was influenced by the Decemberist revolt. That was something where a lot of his friends were exiled for that, uh, if not killed or hung. So it was um, not exactly a, a positive, uh, a positive time for him. No, not quite. Not quite. No. <laughs> yeah. Well. If you want to make more of a discussion on on the place of violence in, in Pushkin's uh, work, we would heartily encourage you to go back to our Captain's Daughter episode. But uh, for now, I kind of want to. There's a lot of things to interrogate here. I want to go over the 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 idea of Napoleon as aspirational. Um, do you want to, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's really that's an interesting aside when he uh, Vladimir and and Eugene kind of form that friendship, and the narrator steps back to say. We, of course, know that this sort of friendship it really can't be. All men are zeros. The units are ourselves alone. Napoleon's our sole inspiration. The millions of two-legged creation for us are instruments and tools. Feeling is quaint and fit for fools. More tolerant in his conception than most. Yevgeny, though he knew and scorned his fellows through and through, yet, as each rule has its exception, people there were he glorified. Feelings he valued from outside. So there's like this, obviously, Evgeny has this exception for, for, for Lensky, but uh, it's interesting that we go from a relatively grounded just account of Lensky and Onegin having a friendship to, by the way, this the new era of Napoleon, it teaches us that, you know, man is nothing. Man is merely a tool to be used in pursuit of martial conquest, for example. Yeah, it's kind of, um, I think the general feeling of a lot of the aristocrats at this time so it's important to note that the narrator comments how lenski coming from his german university he's influenced by goethe and schiller these are his two kind of authors and then on jägen uh he comes from uh, byron and napoleon even he has i think a, a bust of napoleon in his study uh and then tatiana uh, we'll talk a little bit more about her later, but uh, the books that she's reading or the authors that she's reading are mentioned specifically, and we can talk about them in relation to her letter, which are really important. Uh, but so it's interesting because all three of these characters kind of model their own behavior based on what they were reading, and that that's that's pretty significant. I guess Anagin wasn't reading Napoleon, but just the idea of Napoleon, of somebody, just this individual kind of against the world, uh, even though he was at war with uh, Anjagin's country, it was still uh, kind of like this aspirational idea. Um, the fact that he literally just dies on a rock alone <laughs> at sea is just this uh, romantic ideal to be aspired to in a society where everything is so highly regulated as an aristocrat. I mean, not only... I, I know we were joking about how does he have time to do all of this stuff? And most of the stuff is kind of, you know, whatever. But there was definitely the social obligation for aristocrats to be doing things in society, like to be going to these balls. It wasn't just, um, oh, hey, let me go pop by my friend's house. It was like, no, this was a pretty rigid social obligation that you had. And Anjekin kind of starts to, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to fulfill my social obligation. Uh, and that was weird for this. This was kind of a new feeling, I guess, uh, in society. 
And other people were writing about this too. It wasn't just Pushkin. I think he's definitely in conversation with Vyazmsky again, who wrote a poem called Goodbye or Farewell to the Robe. Um, and it's all about, essentially, I just, I'm going to stay home at my house and not go do anything. Don't make me put on official clothing. I'm going to sit in my robe. And I'm into that, first of all. But <laughs> second of all, it forms the basis of what of what Onyegin is kind of getting at. It's almost like an individual sort of resistance against uh, his society. And, and this feeling that he doesn't quite fit into it, which forms the basis for the superfluous man archetype that is kind of continued throughout the rest of i mean you could say it's continued forever but uh, primarily through the uh, 19th century mid and late 19th century but so yeah anyagin has he's very i don't know he has a lot of idleness associated with his personality this kind of just existential boredom that he feels and yeah it it, it is associated with napoleon essentially mm. as this idea that you are supposed to be kind of yeah you know it's kind of interesting in that it's it's resistance by not taking direct action essentially is what it is mm. so it's an, an interesting way to take on napoleonism if you will right yeah interesting okay so i got a lot on that <laughs> yeah yeah clearly well in addition to that uh, uh byron is often invoked um and if we talk a little bit more about byron because that that's something that is I have not been able to escape in researching for this podcast. Byron, inversions of Byron, ironies of Byrony. I think Napoleon and Byron kind of go just hand in hand. Well, because Byron did actually, he did die in the, how he died was he died fighting the Ottoman Empire on behalf of the Greeks. Huh. In, this is in 1824, so this is right around the time that Pushkin was writing this. Right. Interesting. Um, okay. So it's kind of a similar. So that's why I associate them with being similar. Is that they're both kind of like men against the world, like individual against everything. Got it. Um, okay. That's what I associate with being like peak romantic literature. Of course, they had to call him Lord Byron because his name is George Gordon Byron. That's a stupid <laughs> name. <laughs> that is a stupid name. Lord Byron is is Lord Byron's a cool name. George Byron is a stupid name. Yeah, you should see what he looks like though. He looks like a freaking little weasel. Hold on, let me see. <laughs> oh my god, he does um anyway anyway back to our podcast yeah <laughs> yeah so we okay we've had a lot to say about like the, the high ideas of napoleon now i'm gonna i'm gonna bring it down low like real low like near earth level low back to Please. the feet oh uh, so yeah. let's do it so there's a whole there's a six section stanza maybe more i'm just guessing that it's six stanzas it might be more uh about the narrator talking about feet obviously it's not the only time it's not the only time that it's brought up, but it is noticeable. And the many, many very dramatic metaphors of storms and throwing himself down at the feet. I see in the notes that you just have little feet digression written down. <laughs> I would like to know what you mean by this. Uh, yeah, I I do have other real things to be working on, but I so badly want to make a line of Tipsy Tolstoy socks that have like a line from like one of these stanzas on them because i think that would just be so funny that would be wait why are we wait we, we've got time for that we can do that today we we absolutely have time for that i'm gonna do that after this okay okay well after the app well look out for then that then i'll I announce guess. it on twitter that we're doing this series and then i'll post the merch and oh then we will get insanely rich tire <laughs> for sock <laughs> yeah i mean that's my my main my main way of expressing my individuality is through socks i'm currently wearing um 
hops socks right now so I'm, i mean yeah. I'll, I'll provide i'll provide the fortune by spending all my money on our socks heck yeah well we can't get rich if we spend our own money but that's okay we'll figure it out <laughs> so the little feet digression sure i i saw it called that when i was reading through the just the introduction and the copy that i was reading and i was like oh that's funny it probably other people call it that too but um i just i wanted to talk about digression a little bit sure um because you mentioned it in the summary a lot and it's hard to do a summary without mentioning the fact that the majority of the lines are not devoted to the plot of the story <laughs> and that's kind of a specific feature to eugene on and a part of what makes it memorable and important Belinsky, one of the major 19th century literary critics he described eugene on Yegin as the encyclopedia of russian life and i think that he did that because of the because of the digression, more or less. Right. It forms the basis of what Eugene Onegin is, which is not a story about the characters, but it is kind of like the narrator just kind of telling you some things that he sees. <laughs> and if it goes along with the story, then good. Uh, but if not, really the narrator kind of just wants to comment on things, just anything. He wants to comment on his emotions, how he feels, uh, apparently his fetishes uh, and whatnot. <laughs> and so the little feet digression, that's one of many that takes place through Eugene Onegin that essentially allows the narrator, who I think is kind of just this sort of fictionalized persona of Pushkin, to kind of step in and, and comment on things uh, or to just expand on other areas of society where uh, it, it just wouldn't fit for this kind of romantic inspired narrative that is being spun kind of almost in the background actually uh to the digression it's a really major aspect of this that can't be overlooked so yeah mm. the the feet one is just the most noticeable one because it's the most jarring but uh, <laughs> right you know far from the only one yeah it is far from the only one so you have the narrator kind of digressing a lot so the other thing that the narrator does besides digress is uh self-censorship but also well there are literally uh stanzas that were removed by the censor he even acknowledges at the end of chapter one and stanza 60 saying that there are many discrepancies in the stories in the story that he's already written uh, that he sent off but you know he's going to kind of ignore it he, he has no wish to change them essentially because he knows that the censor is going to make him remove them anyways so uh whatever let's just send the script off and uh, get the story going it's kind of a <laughs> funny way and it is it is carried on throughout the rest of onegin uh essentially there's plenty of standards that are uh, they trail off they uh, there are a few that are you know lines are missing in the middle of them there's whole standards that were removed like i said so it kind of draws your attention to that and I'm, I'm pretty sure if i'm not mistaken at least in my copy some of them were restored that that is a, that really kind of struck me about this and this this aside is not going to be very academic in nature uh, but I re remember uh, among the readings I was doing for this was one, I think it was an introduction for some copy of the book. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes uh, in which the, 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 I think this was the translator noted that they had known people who had made their kids memorize Eugene Onegin, which on, on the outset was kind of like, oh, oh ha, people are so, ho so obsessed with Onegin that they'll, they'll make their kids memorize it. But in another sense, it feels like almost a throwback to, you know, of course, many cultures, are oral cultures there there are a lot of uh, people who have always passed down their stories through through oral tradition 
and this almost feels like a, like a throwback. And again, like I mean, this is truly not an academic uh, uh, breakdown at all. This is just something I've been I've been watching of, but it it does feel like a conversation almost because of all the asides of just him dipping into the narrative, dipping into his thoughts. Um, mm-hmm. And many other works I feel like would be hard to memorize, but this one almost it 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 does have an incredibly conversational tone, and that's something that's often noted about Pushkin in general that just picking him up it, it feels very natural to read. And, you know, of course, we're reading translations, so it's by nature going to lose a little bit of what it was. But all the same, it, it does have that kind of, it, it feels like almost a bridge between the oral tradition uh, in the sense that the character really has these very, the almost verbal tics of meandering off into into different topics, of cutting himself off. Naturally, some of these things are because of the censor, but it, it does have like an incredibly fun, very personal reading style which it's not really all that common outside of i think there's like a particular era or particular style which is characteristic of obviously this work um the only other one i can really think of is like descartes meditations which in which uh and i'm sure there are many others in this era that i'm just not familiar with where the author really does engage you in a conversational style which really has the sense of 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 storytelling and like really kind of personal not the word's not elitist like not standing on some sort of pretense of the author as as some sort of uh, um objective or omniscient narrator but rather someone who's just just telling a story now this guy he's just, he's just telling a story about his bud eugene really he does have like a lot of insight into his life of course but he's also got a lot to say about himself and the feet in his own life the feet in everyone's life cameron <laughs> no but that's a good point i think from a narration standpoint but i think also from a poetic standpoint it doesn't it's hard to, for it to come through, I think, in English, just because English doesn't have the same uh, function that mm. Russian does. Where like Russian has different levels of style, low style, high style, and it gets mushed. It gets combined in Anyagin because there is actual literal like conversational style that has to take place because of the fact that people are like speaking to each other. But then uh, when the narrator digresses, he can kind of morph into high style as well or medium-made style, whatever you call it, um, it it allows him to kind of, like, bounce around, which is kind of an interesting uh, function. And like you said, it does have the effect of, at times, somebody's just kind of spinning you a tail. Right, which even allows for this sort of um, uh, making fun of its own characters in which uh, the narrator for for Tatiana, she writes to Onegin in in French because it's noted by the narrator that she really is kind of uncomfortable with 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 Russian. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of the elite classes of of the Russian Empire at the time, French was French was the the, the sort of the, the go to language. Uh, it was it was not it was not Russian. Some of them, case in point, Tatiana were frankly even uncomfortable with using the Russian language. Um, and I think that that's interesting that even like the narrator has space to make fun of characters like Tatiana for that. Yeah, I was reading the um, in the introduction to the copy that I'm reading. It's the uh, Stanley Mitchell translation, the Penguin Classics one. In the introduction, I don't even I don't know if it's Stanley Mitchell's introduction or not, but who's to say? <laughs> whoever whoever happens to be writing here, um, I, I'm just I'm just phrasing it that way so they get some credit. They get an inkling of credit here even though I also had this idea, but I guess I'll, you know, they can have a little smidge here. This is um, just a little bit of credit. Just a little, little bit of treat, credit. Just little a little treat for pop-up. Yeah, he's a little treat for pop-up. Uh, he's characterizing the way that 
Onyegin has been kind of interpreted by different groups of people. And he's saying one of the ways is that, uh, like many of the romantics, Pushkin is using irony to remove illusion, uh, which has this strange result of it actually makes his his fictional world seem more real to us, uh, which is kind of an interesting way of, of thinking about it. Um, and I, I, yeah, I feel like there's just, yeah, like you said, just a really heavy sense of irony to a lot of uh, what he's writing about. I mean, it's really, I feel like I missed it on my first read when I was an undergrad, but like going back recently, I was like, wow, this is actually really funny. <laughs> yeah. No. Like really funny. I was, I was like sitting at this outside this coffee shop today, just laughing to myself. Uh, and how funny this 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 yeah. whole text is! I think this is like the most fun. Not that I haven't had fun with other texts, but like fun in the sense that it was just truly like I was reading jokes going through uh, in this text. Uh, the mo- the most I've had since anything that Gogol has has written. Yeah, more or less. Do you want to talk about Tatiana's letter quickly? Let's talk about the letter. Ish. I know. I was like, wow, we're, we this probably won't have too much to do on this. Maybe we'll do a shorter episode and then i'm looking at the time and i'm like oh no there was so much to say <laughs> turns out one of the most one of the most written about things in russian literature there's a lot to say about it so yeah it turns out that is the case um yeah who's to say um <laughs> all of us so i just want to say. talk briefly about the role of french and the role of tatiana's kind of she's like i guess a classic romantic maybe kind of sentimentalist in her writing and this is I, I won't get into a comparison now but eugene does write a letter to her later in the book and the kind of plot is not bookended but it's kind of propelled by these letters which are the only time where pushkin breaks his um novel in verse he gives us this kind of epistolary look of these two characters writing letters back and forth and so like i said it, it isn't really important that tatiana is part of this first reading generation of women and that her behavior is also kind of modeled on the things that she's reading. This is really informing her worldview because she is kind of just (laughs) trapped in the country. Um, All she has are these books. So that kind of makes sense. Um, And so the narrator notes that she is reading Rousseau and Richardson and this is, there's already a, a clear connection to these authors based on the way that Eugene Onyegin is named, which is for an individual person without any sort of subtitle, which was extremely uncommon. I don't know if it was the first book to ever do that. I think it was, or at least in the Russian tradition. Um, usually books about people had like a subtitle. Um, and so some of the books that Tatiana is influenced by have this kind of same name structure. So um, the book by Rousseau that she's really influenced by Julie or the new Eloise, um, the Richardson book that she's uh, reading, Clarissa, or The History of a Young Lady, they all have kind of these, you know, subtitles. But no, not here. We get just, boom, Eugene Onyegin. Um So Tatiana's letter is, um, and scholars have noticed noted this more or less from, I think, Rousseau's Julie or The New Eloise. Her letter is actually filled with these sort of cliches or lines that are, if not directly inspired, lifted directly from the book. Um, so not only is her is her thinking patterned on the people in these books, which I guess we could, not this episode, because it would take forever to go through an analysis of all three of these books. <laughs> there is a lot of linguistic similarities. 
Um, like Cameron said, it was written in French. The narrator tells you, oh, I've, you know, I've done my best to go ahead and uh, translate it for you here, dear reader. And so she is going through with these kind of French, I don't know if you call them cliches at this point, but these these lines from these novels that she's reading. And there's a couple of models that she's kind of basing them off of. I can br- briefly say the two Richardsonian models um, from Clarissa or the History of the Young Lady. There is sort of the more d- demonic character in this one that she's trying to uh, assess whether Onyegin belongs to this, or there is the... Um, uh, Richardson also writes this book called Sir Charles Grandison, and here is more of the angelic gentleman. And so she has these two sort of ideas in her mind about who Onyegin could be, because life obviously is going to unfold like a romantic novel, uh, or so she insists. And so I think this is partially where you get this sort of fatalist element in her letter, where she's saying, my fate is sealed, I put my trust in you, whose honor is my pledge forever. It has been foreordained in heaven i was marked out for you from birth my life has been a precondition i know you're sent by god's provision uh, and you're my guardian till the grave there's all of this um fatalist language and so uh we'll see uh, in the next part when we look at her dream uh that talks about anegan a little bit more how she tries to understand him in relation to the romantic text that she's reading um but this is yeah this is like a really major part of anegan I, I know that was just a rant, but it's important. <laughs> it's, it's a very informative rant. Thank you. Um, I, I know we mentioned this during the... Oh, I, I mentioned this during The Captain's Daughter, but this this generation where either you are older and you're like, love isn't real, or you're younger and like, mm, the first time I felt any stirring in my Lawrence, that's the person I am in love with forever. What a terrifying time to be alive. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think that it, you... Like, there wasn't... Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know if there was this conception of love until the romantics. Yeah. So unless you grew up reading them, like that was a new thing. Yeah. That's why it seems so ridiculous to us reading now. Well, because we've had like 200 years to kind of like cope with this and be like, all right, maybe like a middle ground. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know? A middle ground between love isn't real and the first person I had a crush on when I was 13 is meant to be with me forever. Or, like, I need to die in a rock alone in order yeah. for my life to feel validated. Like, you know, like, <laughs> real all-or-nothing mentality. Real, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't think we're doing a, a, a reading group for Anyagin. Maybe we should, but if anyone wants to talk about it, you got to jump into our Discord. It's it's happening there, and you're missing out on it. Yeah. Come and talk to us about Onyegin. Or just tell us, start a video call. We, we might. We might. We, we just kind of do it. We just jump in there. Usually we jump in there and start like uh, something about visual novels, like we said, but we could be persuaded to do something actually related to the podcast, too. You can always ask questions about Eugene Onyegin. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that, that that's probably a good place to stop for now. Uh, we'll come back to it later. But Matt, I got to say, I just realized, I didn't just realize this. I realized this a long time ago. We forgot oh, to no. say what we were drinking today. So I'm just going to ask you here. What are you drinking today? What what have you been drinking through this whole podcast? Well, I have been drinking a splash of vodka in a in a Lacroix because that was what I could make in a pinch because I had three minutes from when my dog settled down to take a nap on the couch uh, to when the podcast recording was going to start. <laughs> so now I have an excuse for my laziness. I would have been drinking this even without that. But hell yeah, brother. Yeah. What about you? I have. So I got. I got. 
I, I, I get an actual craft beer for, for once in the last eight episodes. All right. Uh, it is from High Water Brewing, the beer Break Apart, which is an orange cream ale fashioned after those like little fake like oranges, which are just chocolate which you can break apart, um, which is brewed with a uh, four four varieties of orange peels as well as cacao nibs from Ghana. And fun fact about Ghana, actually, the, the majority of the world's uh, uh, cacao or, or just chocolate in general comes from West Africa, um, which is... Know. Yeah, the more you know, the, the um, most people associate it with uh, South America, which, granted, that's where where, where chocolate comes from. Uh, but the majority of it today is grown in in, in West Africa, in Ghana, in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, various other places. Which, uh, as a result of colonialism, I had to teach I had to teach kids about this recently, so I had to learn about it. So so now you can know about it too. But uh, uh, very good. It's it's a good beer overall. And I got I got to ask you, Matt. Um, where has on a scale of one to Yeltsin, where has this vodka and Lacroix left you? Honestly, like a two. I'm like actually parched because I was talking so much about French novels um, that I forgot to get a refill. That's fair. That's fair. So, and I'm also posting about the feet merch on our Instagram now. So. Right. We will. I mean, we got to design that. We got to be some. We got to. We got to have a somewhat sober to drunk ratio to design the feet merch. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get there. Yeah, we will. I don't know if it needs to be said, but I've had uh, roughly four pints of this beer now, so I'm pretty, I'm, I'm like an eight out of ten. So that's phenomenal. I'm happy for you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I'm loving it. I've not drunk a lot in this last week, so it, it's great to be. It's great to be. It's great to be here. <laughs> great to be here. Great to be intoxicated again with you all, uh, yeah. Matt. I gotta ask you. I gotta ask you. What are we doing next week? Next well, episode. next episode, according to our script, we're going to be starting Crime and Punishment, but we did already do that series, so I'm <laughs> guessing that I did not update the script before I did this. No, nope, I didn't. I, 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 I poured it over the script, and I did not update the outro, so That's there you okay. Go. I just thought it'd be funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're doing Eugene Nanyagin again. We're doing this in a three-parter, so next week we're going to be doing parts four, five, and six. Uh, if you want to read along with us, feel free to pick up a copy through the affiliate links on our website. If not, you can find it freely online. So enjoy something, something. <laughs> I couldn't think of a follow up. Um, All right. Just splice that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a it's a funny text. I, I just if you're if you're just here because you're going through your undergrad class, just trying to get some points to put in an essay. I don't know. It's a good time. Just it's it's funny. Read it. It's it's just a joy. Not that everything else we doesn't we read isn't a joy, but this one is light and fun. Actually, most things we read are not a joy. I would say, <laughs> characteristically, they're quite harsh. Yeah, that that actually, yeah, I, I'm reflecting on the fact that we just read all of Dostoy, all of Crime and Punishment, and then all of our history of all, we read the entirety of Dostoevsky's canon. We have not, we've not done that. Um, but when you when you when that happens, you can be assured that this podcast has been taken over by by uh, Doctors Shirley, uh, Holland, and Bowers. <laughs> which in any event good for them <laughs> well before we let you go we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons uh we've got jess but jess jesus <laughs> made it one name in <clears throat> we've got jeff madeline and janice daniel darren daniel jack page jesse lou larkin irini brandon allison cole elise mysterious donor dude joanne drew yitza alex stephanie and julie if you're looking for other places to find us, that's not my line. 
<laughs> podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running take a look at our patreon at patreon.com slash tipsy tolstoy we would so very much appreciate if you would do that the music used in this episode was soviet march by toasted tomatoes and you know if you're still here enjoy our outros because i'm gonna leave all of our our very drunk uh, mess ups in you can find more of their oh, stuff good. on toasted tomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on youtube under the same username it is all good yeah that's the important part mm-hmm. if you're mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're looking for other places to find us you can also follow us on instagram at tipsy tolstoy podcast if are you rewinding looking- yourself like a vhs <laughs> <laughs> this is the noise you make this is my take on it i'm trying to ah you know know, take it revamp it Mm -hmm. sure make it yours (laughs) yeah exactly exactly um if you're and i've just gone into sleep mode hold on uh if you're looking for other places to find us you can also follow us on instagram at tipsy torso podcast as well as on twitter at the same at or you can join our email list on our website tipsytolstoy.com and if you'd like if you'd like to join our asmr group um (laughs) just subscribe to our patreon and just let us know and we'll record our our very own uh bank robbery podcast while also reading (laughs) dostoevsky literature uh i know the bank robbery asmr has already been done but we can do that that with but like with like russian literature is our thing um, we got the mic, so okay. just let us know. I'm cutting camera off. Bye, everyone. <laughs> You'll hear from us again soon. <laughs> <laughs>